This session is from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. Well, welcome. Welcome from the seminary. My name is Doug Bookman, and I teach here at the seminary. I have since 2009. And, uh, and uh, well, I'm thrilled to be a part of this. It's beyond my uh, real, real uh, area of expertise, Christian ethics. I'm not an ethicist. But, but I was asked by, by David Burgraff to do this on the, the Ten Commandments, continuity and discontinuity. And, and I'm happy to do it. It's not like I don't have uh, strong feelings about it. But, uh, but uh, so I'll just work my way through the notes uh, that you have before you. I will say this. Yeah, bro, are you looking for notes? Yeah, if you got if couples got two, I don't be so greedy. <laughs> Here, I got one. I don't need mine. What in the world? <laughs> it's good to see some old friends, and we need to catch up. Well, let me uh, let me just say that clearly the issue of the Ten Commandments and how they apply, how they fit, what role they play legitimately in our individual lives, and so on, it certainly is a is an issue which is number one much discussed. And uh, about which there is a great deal of confusion. But aren't you lucky you came to the right place? But uh, we'll see, won't we? But but uh, by the same token, it certainly does speak to the issue of ethics. And uh, but but I want to deal with it in terms of uh, uh, what it was designed by God to do. What the Ten Commandments were designed by God to be and do when they were spoken. And that's where you have to start. But that's the substance of my. My uh, notes here, so let me have a word of prayer just real quickly. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness, for your revelation of yourself to us. We could not and we would not have known you had not had you not taken the, the initiative. And Father, thank you that you did that and that you have revealed yourself in various ways and various times and times past through the prophets, but in these last days, you've spoken us to, by, uh, to us by your Son, and we give you glory for that. But Father, we want to be careful students as well as conscientious stewards of your word. So help us as we just uh, ponder this rather narrow but important question as to how to understand and what use to make of this uh, blessed uh, set of moral statutes which we which you uh, imposed upon your covenant people. So meet with us. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're talking about the Ten Commandments, and I started out, it just seemed to me, you'll see there, four defining stipulations. I, I don't want to talk much about this, but just to define the, the ground we're working on, number one, a high view of Scripture, right? And I say that because we're not going to go down the road to find ancient Near Eastern parallels from which this came and go to those ancient Near Eastern cultures and supposedly try and figure out what this is all about. This was breathed out by God. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have a little note there, it just occurred to me because... Uh, I say it was breathed out by God, produced by men, born by the Spirit of God. And usually if you're talking about inspiration, bibliology, a high view of Scripture, you have to stop and uh, 
and make the point that we believe, we don't believe in mechanical dictation, right? That's how we're talking about it. Whoops, but that's what's going on right here. This is, this is dictation. This is Moses getting writer's cramp, you know what I'm saying? So uh, it says in Exodus 20, God spoke these words saying. So these Ten Commandments were in some majestic sense spoken by God to Moses. But at any rate, and, and let me just say, I'm going to stop in there real quickly on my high view of Scripture. I say, therefore, it's breathed out by God. And, and number three there, boy, my pen won't work. I'm not sure, but when it gets fussy, it gets fussy. But at any rate, number three there, demands and deserves to be treated with respect and reverence and therefore to be interpreted via the principles of grammatical historical exegesis. Folks, I'll just say in passing that there is this remarkable and important nexus between hermeneutics and bibliology, if you don't mind, the way you handle the Word of God. It ought to be a uh, consequence of what you believe about the Word of God, but oftentimes it becomes the opposite. You handle the Word of God in such a way you got to make excuses. I'll not go down that road. Uh, so, secondly, my second stipulation, this is, if you spend much time with this, uh, Exodus 20 is the same as Deuteronomy 5. I, I realize that in Deuteronomy you have that second giving of the law for the purposes of preparing the people to enter the land, and there are fine points of uh, difference and nuance and so on, but they're exactly the same list, all right? Uh, and then thirdly, and this is important, the Mosaic Law is good. You know, and I say this often in my classes, we, we tend to have, I think almost intuitively, carelessly, witlessly, uh, an overly dismissive attitude toward the Mosaic Law, because we're told again and again, we're not under law. Praise God, we're not under law. Amen and amen, not a man in the world who's happier not to be under law. But the law was good. It deserves our study, our contemplation, but we ought to ponder it as it is. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So in, in making the case that, and that's the positive statement in number four is, the Christian of this age, church age, if you don't mind, I'm not entirely happy with that denomination, but that is denomination, that denominating it that way, is not, we are not under the law. So we all agree with that, right? We are not under the law, we are under grace. All right, well, let me come to the issue before us. And that is, I say, the primary issue to be considered is how ought the Ten Commandments, that is, that remarkable list of moral statutes recorded in the first 17 chapters of Exodus 20, how ought it to be rightly understood? How the Ten Commandments ought to be rightly understood as to their character, what are they, they and their intent? Why did God give that list? So, number one, I'm going to follow my thoughts. One uh, be a caveat, and I already said this, the only means by which that question can be rightly answered is grammatical historical exegesis. Now, folks, that's a truistic statement. But on the other hand, it's not. Because, as I say there, uh, the question often becomes, okay, what role do the Ten Commandments play in my salvation or my sanctification or as I say there, how ought we to allow the Ten Commandments to shape my life? Or how has God used... This is the, by the way, the, uh, in my experience, the secular Jewish approach. They make so much, and it's a legitimate point, of the impact that the morality of the law, and specifically the Ten Commandments, has had on the, on the, the world at large and so on. All right, those are all legitimate after-the-fact considerations. But here it is. The only question to be legitimately asked is, how did Yahweh intend the original recipients of the, first, of the Ten Commandments to understand and apply those statutes? Now, folks, I haven't said anything very 
uh, you know, startling so far, but that is much misunderstood. I told you know a group this morning, if you sit down and open a Bible and ask yourself the question, what does this mean to me? Shame on you. You ask the question, what does it mean? And that is always and ever and only a question of what the original author meant the original readers, listeners, or whatever to understand, right? That's meaning. Now, I like to say, if you do the careful work of exegesis and come away with what, by the Spirit's enablement, you are persuaded is the legitimate meaning, if you then get up and walk away without asking, what does this mean to me? Shame on you all over again. Does make sense to you? Yes. But you start with, what does this mean? And, uh, oh, don't get me started. But uh, it's, it's uh, and, and that is a, a function of, of grammatical, historical exegesis. Grammatical means, and I think it'd probably be the historical grammatical, historical means that you study the passage, the whatever the passage before you, in terms of its historical context, its setting, its literary context, and so on. You've got to recover that as much as possible. And, uh, and, 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 uh, uh, well, that's the historical, then the grammatical. Of course, you, you, you know, some years you understand grammatical, the syntax and the word studies and the, and, and, and the usage and so on. You know, I was, <laughs> it came to me this morning, so I was talking to somebody else, but, but, uh, you know, we, we, we are, we are, what, maybe three or four decades into postmodernity. You know, this was a big change, and don't get me started on this nonsense, but, but the fact is that one of the supposed insights of the postmodern uh, thinkers was that, in point of fact, uh, we come to a written text with a whole set of predispositions. And this was supposed to be some sort of epiphany that, that you know, well, one person comes to a text and because of his background, his predispositions and his biases and all that sort of stuff, duh, like, like, like that's new. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's, it's simplistic. It's jejune. But what is the one answer when you're coming to the scriptures, especially? But I don't care if you come to the Constitution. It's the same set of ideas. What is the one question you, what, what is the one answer to that reality that we come to a text with all sorts of predisposition? It is exegesis. That's what exegesis is all about. It is, it is, it is pursuing the reality that the original author, the human author superintended by the Spirit of God to be sure, embedded the meaning in the text. And so our only responsibility, and quite frankly, our only opportunity is to go to that text and do all the work to mine out the meaning that was embedded there. Does that make sense to you? So, I mean, and there, there are just certain, the parables, the Sermon on the Mount, where I, I, it's just stunning to me the degree to which in many cases we go to those passages, and I think the Ten Commandments is another one. And we just simply ask, okay, how does this apply to me now? How do I, how do I fit this into my theology? No, don't start there. Start with what was God saying on that day. And, it, and by the way, it couldn't be more carefully laid out. We have this historical record, and the Ten Commandments are a part of that historical record. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so here is my to be, my suggested. I'm 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 feigning more humility than I feel, to be honest with you. But but uh, here is my suggested, straightforward, and manifest seems to me biblical answer, and that is quite simply, the Ten Commandments, Exodus twenty one to seventeen, were simply, exclusively, and profoundly, the set of statutory moral regulations and requirements 
by which King Yahweh announced he would govern his covenant people, Israel. Does that make sense to you? This is part of this drama, this grand drama where I like to say, and we'll say it later on, the family of Abraham became the nation of Israel. That's what's going on in Exodus 19 to 24. It's huge, and it's laid out in such detail. So, and, 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 and part of that drama is, is King Yahweh newly, you know, all right. Moses, God offers the covenant relationship. What we call the Mosaic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, the, the old covenant, and so on. God offers that arrangement to Israel. Uh, there at Mount Sinai, the glory cloud is hovering at the top of the mountain, and Moses is speaking to the people, the people are gathered, and he offers that arrangement, and they accept it in Exodus 19, but then God gives this remarkable book of the covenant in Exodus 19 to 24, and in Exodus 24, that covenant is ratified. Does that make sense to you? You know what, I was going to put this, but let me just, let's just rehearse that real quickly. Uh, God brings Israel out of Egypt with a hook in the nose, by the way. You've got to understand it. That is a godless generation. They were hauled out of Egypt kicking and screaming every chance they got. They tried to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt. But what's at stake? What is at stake in the Exodus most profoundly? Is that simply an Old Testament picture of salvation so that when the New Testament comes, we'll be able to figure it out? Boy, if that's a picture of salvation, that's a pretty poor one because I'm telling you, (laughs) that whole generation is going to die in the wilderness by reason of their wickedness. And, 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 and so the point is, God, what's at stake? And he makes this clear in uh, Exodus uh, 9 when he's talking about the seventh plague. And when, when Moses is, is talking to, well, God is actually telling Moses what to say to Pharaoh. And he says, you tell Pharaoh, if I, this is my <laughs> paraphrase, okay? If all that was going on here is I was trying to get Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt, I could have just sent a plague and the whole nation of Egypt would have died and we could have walked out. But that's not what's going on here. What's going on is God is going to demonstrate his covenant-keeping character. He made a promise, Genesis 15. Your children, Abram, are going to go down to a land which is not there. It's going to be 400 years. After that, I'm bringing them out. There was nothing on earth that was more unthinkable, more unlikely that Israel would be delivered, that slave people, from, from Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, whose economy was almost entirely dependent upon that slave labor. They're not leaving. But God intervenes, and the reason he has 10 plagues. I always say if if all God was trying to do is get Israel out of Egypt, I think the 10th plague probably could have been the first. You know, they probably would have done it, you know, if, if, if all the firstborn. But that's not what God's trying to do. God is trying to put his glory on display. Amen. You know, here, I shouldn't go here. But the fact is, I like to say, I didn't come up with it, but I like to say sin makes you stupid. And, 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 and Clinging to sin, destructive sin, makes you more and more stupid, more and more hard. And, and so God works so carefully with Pharaoh. God does not speak his heart. You know, Pharaoh is absolutely morally responsible for the hardening of his heart. God choreographs the, the series of, of incidents. So again and again, Pharaoh has an opportunity to repent. He refuses to repent. His heart gets harder and harder. His heart, 
And so what happens? The 10th plague, the Egyptians force the Israelites out, give them all the wealth and so on. The glory cloud appears that night, leads them to the Red Sea. You pick, okay? But uh, uh, I kind of think the Gulf of Aqaba now, but you pick. But but the point is, leads them to the Red Sea, and, uh, and, and Pharaoh hears about it, and he takes all of his chariots, and he comes charging after him. And I always like to say, think about this scene. Think about this scene. Here you are. You're, you're the Pharaoh. You're charged after. You had about nine months, uh, frogs up your trousers. You know what I'm saying? A, a pretty much, pretty miserable nine months here. Your cattle are all dead. Your crops are no good. But now, here's Israel. And they're crammed up, you know, a hill there and a hill there and Israel up against the Red Sea. And, uh, you're about to attack and all of a sudden a glory cloud descends upon you and you can't see for turning around. So all night long, you got the glory cloud so deep on you can't see a thing. And in the morning, the glory cloud lifts up, and yonder you can see where Israel used to be. There's a big opening. It used to be the Red Sea. And there's a wall of water there, and there's a wall of water there. And you look at that, you're Pharaoh, and this is the stupidest command in human history. <laughs> Who does this? After them, boys. You know... Uh, that had to be the most timid giddy-app in human history. You know what I'm saying? Those charioteers. Now, my point is, what God is doing is putting himself on display, and he's using the hardness and wickedness of Pharaoh, for which Pharaoh is entirely morally responsible, in such a way, I love, you go to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and you remember when Israel wickedly, stupidly carries the ark into, in, in, into battle? Remember that? And the Philistines got their spies over there and they come back and they said, what are we going to do? Uh, they brought, and they say this, these are the gods that destroyed the Egyptians in the wilderness. That's 400 years later. 400 years later. I'm telling you, God knows how to put himself on display. How to, and, and you know what's at stake as much as anything else is his covenant keeping character. All right. What's that got to do with anything? So, I can't remember, but I'm going to keep going. But but now, <laughs> listen, honest to goodness, though, it is such a drama, such a drama. And obviously, I mean, that's that's truistic. But but now they you, you fast forward, and here they are at Mount Sinai, and the glory cloud has led them there. They've crossed the Red Sea. And now, as a, again, the glory cloud hovers above the, uh, the, the, mount, uh, the mount there, and, and, and uh, he offers them this covenant by which, and here's the thing, I'm going to say it again. The family of Israel, uh, the family of Abraham is going to become the nation of Israel. You know, the first 215 years, Genesis 12 to 15, four patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Jacob goes down, grows large, comes out, but you still don't have a nation. You have a nation, you got an organization, you got a, and, 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 and so God, King, Yahweh, let's say it that way. Yahweh offers them a covenant by which he would become their king. And in the most real sense. And they accept that covenant. Now again, these are not a godly people. And because uh, this is just after they cross. Now later on, of course, they're, they're, they're going to leave here and they're going to go to Kadesh Barnea and they're, the tw- ten spies are going to come back and they're going to say, this is Hebrew, Itzne on the Anquest K. I like to say that's a little Hebrew thrown in there. But, uh, but the point is that, that they, 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 and, 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 uh, matter of fact, I like to say that, um, you remember that, uh, when they came back, they were so distressed at the size of the cities and the, the height of the warriors and so on. They said, would to God our 
carcasses died in this wilderness. And God said, you know what, that can be arranged. And so for four, you know, for the balance of that, for a total of 40 years, they're all dying. Now, my point is that I don't think it was out of a heart of deep faith and devotion to Yahweh. But God offered them. But remember that, as a matter of fact, I always, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Remember that, that they're in a wilderness. They're totally unprotected. They have no real stores to feed these two and a half, three million people. Uh, the only water they've got they can depend on is coming out of the side of a rock and bread's falling out of heaven every morning. So they have a number of incentives to acquiesce to the offer, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but uh, so I don't think, but my point is that's exactly what happens. He offers them an arrangement by which he will become their king in the most physical sense. And they accept that. And so the first thing that happens is God gives what is referred to, and I think appropriately, it's referred to in Exodus 24 and verse 7 as the book of the covenant. And I like to say it's sort of a, it's, it's, it's King Yahweh, newly accepted, not yet inaugurated. But King Yahweh, in order to make, it's his careful, he's taking steps to make sure that you won't be able to use the fine print argument. If we'd have known what we were getting into, and so you have this brief consideration of various laws. I mean, in, in, in Exodus 19 to 24, you really have an amazing random selection of laws that are laid out. And uh, at the end of that time, I'm not going to go there, but Exodus 24, Moses again says, uh, uh, offers them the covenant. They say, all that Yahweh has said we will do. And therefore, Moses takes, sacrifices an animal, takes the blood and sprinkles it on the people, probably on the elders of the people as representative, and on the book of the covenant. And uh, that book of the covenant begins with Exodus chapter 20. And by the way, that is the ratification, the formal official ratification of the old covenant. It happened in 1446, Exodus 24 and verse 7. But what happens then is newly accepted. He's not yet enthroned. That's soon to come, but he has been, the covenant has been ratified. And so he calls Moses up into the mountain and Moses is going to spend a total of 80 days there during which he eats and drinks nothing, subsists in some strange, you know, almost mystical sense on the very presence of Yahweh and, uh, and descends with the plans for the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a throne room. Above all other things, the tabernacle is a throne room. And of course, it, it, it includes the, the, the building, the courts by which you approach him with the altar and the labor and then the, the, uh, uh, holy place and then the holy of holies, the inner chambers, which is the throne room. And, uh, and, and what happens, of course, and in the throne room is the Ark of the Covenant, right? tell people, it doesn't apply here, but I tell people, when I talk about the Ark of the Covenant, you're thinking of a really big boat, you need to spend more time in the Old Testament, you know what I'm saying? But but the point is that you have that marvelous box with the cherubim patterned after the heavenly tabernacle and a glory cloud, that's, that's the theophonic presence of Yahweh, King Yahweh. Rain, uh, uh, it sits on that, and what happens is, in Exodus chapter 40, Moses comes down, they gather the materiel, God God gifts these two guys, Aholiab and Bezalel, I want to meet these guys, uh, you know, with every sort of artificing ability. And so they're able to build the tabernacle. And they, uh, Exodus chapter 40, Moses finishes the work. And what happens? The glory cloud lifts up and takes, as a matter of fact, I'm going to take you there because it's just, 
it's 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 kind of fascinating the way it's it's it, the, the point that is made there. Let me just see if I can get to Exodus chapter forty. So you have you have the finishing of the tabernacle, and then it says so Moses finished the work. That's the tabernacle. That's the throne room, and uh, the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. The glory cloud filled the tabernacle. That is Yahweh, King Yahweh, taking his throne. That's the enthronement of King Yahweh. Now, I'm saying, and this is I, this is one of my points, and I can go quickly when I get there, that that it's so desperately important. And I'm talking about the Ten Commandments. You're going to understand what's going on with the Ten Commandments. You have to put them in their historical setting, and the historical setting is they part of the they are an integral, if you don't mind, seminal, foundational part of that book of the covenant, Exodus 24, verse 7, by which the, which, which defined the, the terms of the Mosaic covenant, the law, the old covenant. And, uh, and, 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 and the point is that by reason of that covenant, Yahweh became king in Israel, and this is the point, in the most physical, palpable, real, mundane. Mundane is not bad. It just means the ordinary things of life, right? And Yahweh became king in Israel. And that's in 1446. And he's going to remain on that throne. There's a little hiatus toward the end of the judges. It's really interesting when the Psalm 78 verse 60, when the glory cloud departs for a time and, and, uh, Oh, you get this tabernacle wandering around. Remember that? You got two high priests and that's another story. But the point is basically the theocracy the real rule by God, by King Yahweh over his covenant people lasts from 1446 to 592 BC. 592 BC because uh, in the days of Ezekiel, Ezekiel watches as the glory cloud departs and he dates it. So from 1446 to 592. Now, why do I spend time on this? Because uh, I'll come to it in just a minute. But Look at verse 36 here. I like this. Just the way, the, the way Moses records this, it says, whenever the cloud was taken up, the children of Israel go forward. So he was giving marching orders. It's to that degree, it's to that measure of specificity that Yahweh is really king. And by the way, he invited you to approach him. And he gave you a set of five sacrifices, Leviticus 1 to 7 which would qualify you no matter what the impulse, no matter what the need, and you wanted to go personally to King Yahweh and do business personally with King Yahweh, you were invited to do that. You never did it without sacrificial uh, uh, ritual purity, uh, purification, which happened through those five sacrifices. Now, for what it's worth, I'm convinced. You remember these? Remember you had the, 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 the whole burnt offering, which was just dedication to God. You had the meal offering by which you could offer up the work of your hands. If you were not, you know, you didn't raise animals, you could bring grain or wine. It had to be mixed with another. Uh, you, there was the peace offering. What's the grand distinctive of the peace offering? You remember? Yeah, the, the, the worshiper ate part of the meal. And that's what it is. Peace. And you could use that. Uh, as a votive offering. I always think of Hannah. Remember Hannah? Every year when they go up to, remember Hannah, and she had that uh, rival wife, Penina, and her husband, Elkanah, and every year he's a good man. He's a, you know, I got two wives, isn't that big of me, we used to say, but uh, but, but, but nonetheless, he's, he's clearly a good man, and when he would go up, he would, 
and and they would sacrifice. He would give his wife the greater part, the the, the greater part of the meal. Remember, he'd give Hannah. Well, right away, that means that's a peace offering. And Hannah was, we know she was, you know, her her song of thanksgiving was Mary later almost copies her, certainly builds on. Uh, she was a remarkably well studied student of the of the law. Hannah was, and she realized that the fact that they had taken a peace offering was the means by which she might. So she goes and stands before before King Yahweh. Now, to be sure, in the courtyard, you only go so far. So, you know, you don't. But nonetheless, you could do that kind of business. Now, the other two offerings were the sin and the trespass. And for what it's worth, I'm convinced, I think. I believe this with two or three fibers of my being. I like to say, you can maybe talk me out of it. But what makes sense to me is that the sin and the trespass offering were usually matters of judgment. That is, you had done something, you had stolen your neighbor's lamb, you you had been caught at it, or you had confessed whatever, you had to repay four times to restore it to your neighbor, but you had to make things right with King Yahweh. You're a citizen of this theocratic community, and you got to make things right. And I think it was probably a matter of the judge demanding that you go and offer the appropriate sacrifice and find and, and, and make things right with King Yahweh. That's how serious it was. I had in my mind, and I think a lot of people do, that every time you sin, you had to offer a sin offering. And I thought, man, I wouldn't get much else done. How about you? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but uh, however you like. I, but my point is simply this, that Yahweh was, to that degree, genuinely, really, just imagine that. There's this glory cloud. And it's not a little, I think it's explosive, over the top. And this glory cloud is, is in the in the Holy of Holies. And now you're invited to come bringing an appropriate sacrifice and coming through the agency of a priest and to stand there before Yahweh and to do business with Yahweh. I don't know exactly what the interchange was like, but clearly it was real. That was Hannah's. She made that promise and God made her a promise and so on. So way back to it. My point is that Yahweh in 1446 at Mount Sinai offered a covenant by which he would become genuinely the king and he he, he, he functioned as king, uh, from 1446 to 592. Now, I like to say in 592, the theocracy was suspended because I think it's coming back. And so do the apostles. They said, well, th- at this time, will you restore the kingdom? That's what they're waiting for. That's what we're waiting for. But, uh, uh, uh but but when the theocracy was suspended because the times of the Gentiles was about to descend, that's 592. Remember 586, Nebuchadnezzar shows up. I mean, Yahweh's kind of getting out of Dodge there, if you know what I mean, because that, that kingdom is, I mean, that temple is going down. But on the other hand, the 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 Abrahamic covenant was in no sense. All right, I'm getting way afield. All right, so let me take you back to the notes and see if I can make some sense of it. So I'm saying that that... What's going on with the Ten Commandments is that they are an integral part, a basic and defining in many ways part of this covenant document. And by the way, it's often been observed that Deuteronomy seems to be formed after a rather standard covenant, Susan, uh, Susan G. Vassal Treaty. Are you familiar with this? Uh, it seems to follow the pattern of an ancient, now oh, we're not doing genre criticism here. We're not trying to, but, but clearly, Moses in Deuteronomy is offering, is, 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 that Deuteronomy is a deliberate, Moses at the end of his life and so on, uh, is a very deliberate, uh, what, what, 
what Moses is doing is very deliberately and creatively bringing that generation. This is a believing generation, by the way. This is a, I always say, you know, there were two generations in that story, the Exodus and then the conquest. Two generations that crossed a, a, a miraculously divided body of water. Remember that? You want to know everything you need to know about those two generations, just ask yourself in each case, where was the enemy? I'm saying at the Red Sea, where was the enemy? How much courage did that take, for heaven's sakes? At the Jordan River, where's the enemy? This is a gung-ho generation. This is a godly generation. But Moses wants to bring them, as does Joshua at the end of his life, to a moment of covenant reaffirmation. That is the book of Deuteronomy. My point is, Exodus 19 to 24, and I put this in your notes a little bit, uh, seems to be the same thing. It's, 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 it's a rather, it's, it seems to be quite clearly a carefully crafted document designed to reaffirm the covenant relationship. Well, actually to define. This is the original book of the covenant. All right. So I'm saying, took me a long time to say it, but I, I think the, uh, the, uh, the Ten Commandments are simply that set of statutory moral regulations by which King Yahweh, in offering and defining the Old Covenant to the people of Israel, laid out the moral regulations by which he was going to govern. Does that make sense to you? I mean, it's, it's on the face of it. It's, it. I mean, that's not hard to come. That's why I say it's, it's, it seems to me it's rather manifest. All right, now, I have. And this just, this is, you know. An old and graying mind just trying to pull things together. I have five points of conceptual carelessness. Because it is true that there is so much confusion about how to understand the Ten Commandments. And I don't think there should be. But but I think there are... So I'm going to go very quickly. I already said the first one. Five, it seems to me, factors that kind of muddy the water. First of all, is a crippling, if not uh, underappreciated, I'm not contempt for the theocracy of the Old Testament. I already walked you through it. I even put on your... Notes. I, I add an addendum of, of, it's actually just a little excerpt out of a dissertation I did on the Urim and Thummim, but, but in that case, as in this, it's so important to understand the theocracy of right, and it is, frankly, almost universally misunderstood, underappreciated, or even regarded with contempt in the evangelical world today, because everything in the Old Testament is just types and shadows, and God's not really doing anything back there. Israel's not important except for to show us lessons and so on. Oh, 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 oh no. And, and God, in fact, it's, the theocracy is absolutely central to the Old Testament. Uh, I, I can prove that to you in, uh, the Old Testament. I don't know how to get there. And also in Alva McLean, for what it's worth. So if you ever read greatness yet, well, I get you to it. But, uh, but the point is, uh, and, and do you see where I'm taking? Well, let me go to the second one. I say generally, an underappreciation of, if, if not a contempt for the primary role of event revelation, in God's work of divine disclosure. Now, let me walk you through this real quickly. This is really, I think, what, what's this got to do with the Ten Commandments? Well, go to the third point there on the next page, and that is the, the, the tendency to treat the Ten Commandments as some sort of independent conceptual unit, not connected in any substantial or necessary way to the historical narrative in which they are found. So, so as I say, they, it's like you take this 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 little pericope, this little section, you set it on the table, and it's got nothing to do with the way. And we're just going to ask ourselves, ah, what do we want to do with this? You don't have a right to do that. And 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 honest to goodness, I'm going to go back to number two, having gone there, folks. This is kind of a thing with me. I'm going to share it with you, uh, only because I have something of an opportunity. But the uh, 
I like to say, and I think it's important to make this point in teaching and so on, I like to say, I'm going to find myself on the whiteboard here so I can write a little bit, that, that uh, we have in the scripture the record of divine revelation. And, 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 and it's so important to understand that in, in revealing himself, and I always say, I'm not, I'm not making this up. I'm not sucking this out of my thumb for heaven's sake. The record is absolutely explicit that God's act, uh, God's, uh, ministry of self, God's effort at revealing himself, apocalypsis, unveiling, always happened in two stages. And the first stage is, and this was an absolutely standard construct that we were taught in my day, you know, but you never hear it anymore. And it's so important. And I'll show you why in a minute. First of all, there is event revelation. That always comes first, and that is God breaking in to human history. I like to use the phrase, I made it up my own self. So there, this is God perpendicularizing himself to human history. He's just breaking in. And like I say, water's parting and walls are falling down and bread's falling out of heaven and, and uh, choirs are breaking into music and whole foreign armies are slaughtering one another and so on. This is God breaking into human history. That makes sense to you? It's, it's visible, it's palpable. This is why, and, and, and I, I make this point all the time to, to, to emphasize this, that your faith, the faith of Scripture, is uniquely and necessarily importantly grounded in real history. No other system of faith or philosophy can make that claim. It's usually somebody, uh, maybe with a big tummy who sits on a hill somewhere and has grand metaphysical thoughts, and if you can get in touch with that, you'll be wafted off to some <laughs> level. What in the world is that all about, for heaven's sakes? But the fact is that your faith is grounded in real history. Yeah. And, 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 and so God breaks in in event revelation. Now, the point is that that would not be enough. And so God always follows that with word revelation. This is a good construct to think of. And word revelation, he raises up a spokesman. In the Old Testament, we call that, that, that spokesman a prophet. In the New Testament, we call him a, a, an apostle. And God, by the way, vindicates that man's claim to be speaking for God by means of miracles. So there's no question about this is objective. And then God, and, and I like to say that that, that the, those spokesmen have two responsibilities. Number one is to record the event revelation. Now see how important this is? We didn't see those waters part, but we have eyewitness testimony and, and thoroughly vindicated. By the way, time out. It's very important that those eyewitness records were circulated at a time and in a place again and again where they were perfectly liable to falsification. You know what I'm saying? There were people who were still alive who can remember. 400 years later, they're remembering it, you know, the Philistines. So, so, but number one, they record. So now, though we were there, we have this marvelous record of God intervening in human history because here's where I'm taking you. The event is revelatory. It's not just some morality play. It's not some, you know, Aesop's fable. It's not just a story that illustrates. No, no. The event is the revelation. That's so important to understand. And of course, it reaches his apogee in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I don't want to go there, but the point is he's the living word. His life is revelatory. Ah, but 
Not only do they record so that later generations have an absolutely dependable record of that divine intervention, but secondly, they interpret. They interpret God's, because you see, if all we had to word revelation, remember, God spoke out loud in John chapter 12 in that unspeakably winsome moment between father and son when the father and the son prays and the father responds out loud. You remember that? John 12, verse 21. And, and, and the people standing around said it thundered. So that's how you can get it wrong if, you know, if event revelation. And so God raises up these, these spokesmen and they are, so, to make the point there, I'd like to say this, that how well could we understand the marvelous event revelation of the cross? How well would we understand what God was doing and saying on that little rise outside a northern gate in Jerusalem on the morning of March 3rd, uh, April 3rd, 33 AD? How well would we understand that if we had Matthew? So we got the record, but we didn't have Romans. You see the point? Ah, but watch this. Could God make, could Paul make the point he is trying to make as to how God can be just and the justifier of them that believe? Could he make that point if we had Romans, but we didn't have Matthew? Now this is infinitely good genius. I mean, the way God has contrived to make himself known to us in spite of the fact we're not interested. And, 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 and he breaks into human history and then he, 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 he records it by eyewitnesses and, 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 and vindicates and passes along. And then, and then those, the, 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 the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles come along and they flesh all that out. And now God has, so my point is, going back to my notes, I think it is, all right. I'm, you know, I'm the only smart guy in the room if you listen to me, and I'm, I don't mean to be that way, but, but I just think it's such a tendency today for evangelicals even to read these passages or, or, or seize upon these individual pericopes units and so on and to consider them totally absent their place in the historical narrative. The historical narrative is not only just, you know, it's not the, it's not the, <laughs> listen, you know, an illustration occurs to me. I don't know if I can make it work or not. But, you know, the the two little biscuits on the outside of the frosting in the middle, you know what I'm saying? You don't have an Oreo cookie. You know, the, 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 the historical narrative is absolutely, it's intrinsic. It's ontological to what God is doing. Does that make sense? So, yeah, and so... And so to, to ponder any part of it absent, that's why that you have the history and the history is so carefully recorded. All right. I gotta be, be done. So I'm saying it. Number one, I think a, a, a carelessness about just the reality of the theocracy. Number two, a, a willingness or a tendency to, to ponder these sections of scripture absent the historical setting in which they're so carefully and instructively placed. Number four, and I won't spend any time with this, I give you some notes, and by the way, I borrowed heavily from Pete Gaiman's dissertation, uh, and I, I cite it down there, but he has a nice section on this whole business of the tripart division. And I know you all do it, quit it, okay? But we all talk about there's the civil law, there's the, the ceremonial law, there's the, the moral law. All right, you can categorize it. I think it's kind of a plastic categorization. 
But what happens, and, and Pete does such a good job, he points out that you really can't trace that past Aquinas in the 13th century. It's not a part of the, you know, the early fathers didn't think of the law in that fashion. The law never considers itself. I'll give you his arguments real briefly, and you can chase them down yourself. But but the point is that, see, that's the primary, and he calls the traditional Reformed view, which is employed to argue that part of the law can be for, for us today, even though we're not under the law. That's the argument. And I'm going to say right up front, it's bogus. You just can't do that with the law. And James makes the point that it's a unified law. Paul makes that point. I gave you the verses. So if you, if you take that off the table, it's kind of hard to make the case that in any sense we're not under the law. Oh, except for this part of the law. No, we're not under the law. You can't divide it up. And, uh, and, uh, oh, the one other thing, and this is just very popular, and that is number five there, is this notion that, that, that in, in articulated Ten Commandments, God was introducing the idea, for instance, that murder was wrong. And so that, well, then, if you say that the law is not for today, it's okay to murder. What in the world? I say at the bottom of the sheet, you know, we are 2,600 years into human history before the law is given, for heaven's sakes. If, if you want creation of 4,000 and, and Moses of 1,400. So the, and, and this is, this has a bigger side. And that is that all of these moral stipulations are, are, are included and are legitimate because they reflect the character of God and takes us all the way back to the created order. So at any rate, Pete does a nice job with that. So. Here is my 2A there, my personal, albeit secondary. And when I say secondary, I mean uh, you got to start with the first consideration. First consideration is what were they originally intended to be, right? What were those ten, what role were they to play? And they are part of the covenant arrangement by which. So I would say negatively, the Ten Commandments have no legally, morally, or biblically binding impact on the believer today, whatever. But lest we say, because I love studying the law, I just there is so much to be learned about God's wisdom and character and so on. And I like what Pete does. Pete, uh, uh, in his uh, Pete Gaiman in his uh, dissertation, uh, talks about various approaches to the law, and he introduces one which A I'd never heard of, and B, although I looked it up and he seems to be right, I still can't believe he spelled it right. But it's right at the bottom of the sheet there. Gaiman is the last footnote. I say Gaiman is developing an approach to Mosaic law. Uh, which he denominates principalism. Principalism. Don't you feel like you ought to say, you know, buy a bowel, Vanna. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's what he, I look it up. That, that is a word. So, but what he means, and he explains it very, very well, is that, uh, as I say there in the in the quote from Gaiman under two B. So I say positively, uh, the, the 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 Ten Commandments, indeed, all the Old Testament, all the Mosaic Law. Play, ought to play a sublimely important didactic role in the life of the believer. And I'm going to read to you Pete's conclusion. He says, although the law is no longer binding, that doesn't mean there is no usefulness to the Mosaic law. For the New Testament authors, the Mosaic law retains its didactic purpose. The law stops functioning as a law code, that is, it has no place to apply it, but it retains its pedagogical function, giving the Christian insight into the character of the Creator and his created order. The New Testament teaches the Mosaic law remains profitable, 2 Timothy 3. It's part of all scripture. Christians are not obligated to obey Old Testament laws simply because they are law. That is, I didn't put the right, they're not obligated to obey, obey Old Testament laws simply because they are law, 
but as many, in as much as the laws reflect God's intention for his creation, the law to become a paradigm as to for how a Christian should act and so on. So amen and amen on studying the law. The law is good. As a matter of fact, that's how I conclude. Now listen, let me say two things real quickly. I, I have their afterthoughts. I, I think two interesting and instructive specific issues. One is the Sabbath. Everybody, everybody who wants to make the laws for today, the Ten Commandments, they stumble, well, what are we going to do with the Sabbath? Well, number one, it's not. But even those of us who are going to reject that idea, we're still, you know, it seems like a little bit of a, which one of these is not like the other exercise, right? The Sabbath. Listen, you know what the Sabbath is? You've got to understand this. The Sabbath is treason. That is breaking the Sabbath. You see, in Exodus 31, it is established that the Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant is the covenant by which Yahweh became king in Israel. And so what circumcision was to the Abrahamic covenant, the rainbow, the, the Sabbath. And so when you keep the Sabbath, you are swearing allegiance to the covenant by which God made himself king. And so to break the Sabbath is tantamount to treason, which is a moral wickedness, Romans 13. In other words, so it's not just simply, now the reason it becomes it becomes unimportant, and Paul says that we don't have to observe it and so on and everything moves to Sunday, is because that theocratic rule has been has been suspended. And so, and by the way, I don't think we want to be swearing allegiance to the Mosaic Covenant, for heaven's sakes, you know, but that's what you're doing in keeping the Sabbath. And the same thing, forgive me, with sacrifices, because this is a big thing, you know, but if you, I already said it, if you, if you go to the Old Testament and, 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 and read, not necessarily, I was going to say carefully, just read, it becomes very, very clear that those those sacrifices in, in Leviticus 1 to 7, which do, uh, yeah, Leviticus 1 to 7, which do appear in Ezekiel 43 in the millennium, they're not, they're not personal atonement. They are ritual purification in order to qualify you to approach King Yahweh. And guess what? In the kingdom, King Jesus is going to be sitting. There are going to be lost people and you're not going to approach him. You're going to be invited to approach him, but you're not going to do it without ritual purification. So if you allow the scriptures, to define today, everything is Christocentric, and so everything is about personal atonement, personal redemption. No, it's not. And and those 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 seven those five, I said it. I like to call them administrative sacrifices. They 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 are the means by which you are you render yourself qualified to approach King Yahweh, and it's a it's a huge blessing. And I, one other point, and that is, I don't like the continuity discontinuity. It was assigned me. I put it on the title. I think it's an unhelpful construct. I refuse to acquiesce to the idea that covenant, replacement, amillennial theology, whatever you want to call it, has a continuity, and we, dispensationalists, I said it right out loud, are not, uh, listen, there, it is, there is such a blessed continuity, there's such a progress, everything is moving so carefully, you can trace God's hand as he sets out to glorify himself, as you allow the scriptures to unfold the narrative as they do. Does that make sense to you? Amen. So, my conclusion is, you want to argue with this? The law is good, if you use it lawfully. <laughs> to, to cite a, a recognized authority, as I say, that'd be First Timothy 1. Alright, thank you. We got on to the next event. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.